Well, I think in understanding the First Amendment, the, the, the first source of wisdom is to recognize that there are many forms of expression, many forms of speech and writing and utterances that are not protected by the First Amendment, but ironically, there's many forms of conduct that are protected by the First Amendment. And Texas versus Johnson is one of those cases in which pure conduct is protected because it's considered to be the equivalent of expressive conduct or symbolic speech. My name is Stephen Markman. I've taught constitutional law for many years at Hillsdale College, and during the day I, I serve as a justice on the Michigan Supreme Court. One should not think of the First Amendment as the most important because it is the First Amendment, because in truth it was only the third of 12 amendments proposed by Congress to the states for ratification in 1791 as part of the Bill of Rights with the first two of these amendments eventually failing to secure ratification. It may, however, be viewed as the most important amendment because of its subject matter, in particular its protections for freedom of speech and religion and a free press. In this lecture in our series, we will address a single one of many aspects of the First Amendment's Freedom of Speech Clause, which specifies simply and straightforwardly that the Congress shall not abridge the freedom of speech. At the outset, it's important to understand that the freedom of speech is not one that applies to every conceivable kind of speech or utterance or writing, but it is the freedom of speech, a particular freedom of speech that pre-existed our Constitution and the American experience. The freedom of speech that we enjoy, for example, is a very considerable freedom of speech, almost certainly the broadest in the world, but it does not protect tobacco companies that wish to truthfully advertise their product. It does not protect speech that incites or provokes criminal activity. It does not protect obscenity or pornography. It does not protect television and radio broadcasters from federal regulations that require balanced or fair content. It does not protect sound trucks that may wish to communicate political messages at all hours of the day in your neighborhood. It does not protect certain types of fighting words or yelling fire in a crowded theater. It does not protect courtroom expressions of disrespect for judges. It does not protect all things said in the course of a stock offering or the marketing of a pharmaceutical product. It does not protect those who libel, slander, defame, or threaten. It does not protect those who exhort on behalf of candidates near polling places. It does not allow persons to picket or parade or gather with like-minded persons at any time and place of their choosing. It does not allow one to inform our country's enemies of troop movements of which he or she might be aware. It may or may not protect all forms of hate speech, and it does not even allow those who feel passionately about a candidate for political office to do all that they can to financially support and assist that candidate. 
Thus, our freedom of speech, say the courts, is not absolute at all times and under all circumstances. Rather, protected speech must be something that constitutes an essential part of the exposition of ideas rather than merely a scream or a private conversation, and it must take place within appropriate public places subject to so-called time, place, and manner limitations, wherein, for example, the state may take into account that a library's purpose is incompatible with someone speaking from a soapbox. A public school's purpose is incompatible with forms of expression that undermine discipline. And a courthouse's purpose is incompatible with attempts by visitors to influence members of a jury. At the same time, while there are many statements, utterances, and writings that are not protected by the First Amendment, there are, interestingly, many forms of conduct in which nothing at all may be said, but that are protected by the First Amendment. These are sometimes described as symbolic speech or expressive conduct or even speech plus. Thus, there are some things that are said or written that are not subject to protections of the Constitution, and there are some things that are not said or written that are protected by the First Amendment to that Constitution. And the principal case in this lecture involves the latter, conduct that is protected by the Freedom of Speech Clause of the First Amendment. The case is a 1989 decision by the United States Supreme Court addressing a Texas law that prohibited the desecration or destruction of a venerated object. A venerated object is one that is typically treated with reverence and respect and is specifically defined in this Texas law as a public monument, a place of worship or burial, or national or state flag. Gregory Johnson, the defendant, had been convicted of violating this law when during his participation in a political demonstration outside the 1984 Republican Convention, protesting an assortment of actions by the Reagan administration, he burned and destroyed an American flag, apparently to emphasize his points of disapproval. Now, clearly, there was no question here that Johnson had burned or desecrated the flag. Indeed, it turned out the flag had been stolen from the flagpole of a nearby public building, and thus that Johnson had violated the Texas law. The central issue, however, was whether the law was constitutional under the Freedom of Speech Clause of the First Amendment. Did that law abridge Johnson's freedom of speech? Now, how could this have been the case that there might have been an abridgment when Johnson had not been charged or convicted for anything that he had spoken or written, while protesters, including Johnson, were heard to chant, America the red, white, and blue, we spit upon you. Johnson was not convicted for having indulged in such poetry, but only for his conduct of having burned and thereby desecrated the flag. The Supreme Court, however, has long held that the First Amendment's protections do not end at spoken or written words, but extend also to what they describe as conduct imbued with elements of communication. 
This involves an inquiry into whether the prohibited or regulated conduct, in this case the burning of an American flag, was undertaken with an intention to convey a particular message, one that would likely be understood by those who witnessed that conduct. Think, for example, of a pantomime carried out by a person dressed and adorned to resemble Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, a police officer, or an American soldier. Silence aside in those instances, was a message intended and would it have been generally understood by spectators? Here there was no serious dispute that Johnson, a member of the Communist Youth Brigade, was in fact seeking by the flag burning to convey a particular message and that such message would likely be understood by onlookers. It was a message concerning Ronald Reagan, his administration, the Republicans, and the United States of America, and none of it, I dare say, was intended to be a very flattering or favorable message. What must be done in such symbolic speeches, speech cases, is that prosecutors, judges, and lawyers must seek to differentiate and distinguish between the law's impact upon conduct that communicates and the law's impact upon conduct that does not communicate. For it is only the communicative aspect that is protected by the freedom of speech clause of the First Amendment. If it is the burning, for example, of any kind of property within a public place, for example, that is the focus of the law, the First Amendment will likely be inapplicable in assessing the merits of that law. If, however, it is only the burning of a flag, or even more specifically, only the burning of an American flag, that is the focus of the law, the communicative aspect of that law or regulation may become more significant and thus also the applicability of the First Amendment may become more likely. In 1968, the U.S. Supreme Court established a kind of test to review these kinds of conduct as speech or symbolic speech controversies. That test was articulated in United States versus O'Brien a case in which Jerry O'Brien burned his Selective Service Registration Certificate, more commonly known as a draft card, on the steps of a courthouse in protest of the Vietnam War. Again, sending a message most of us could probably have understood at the time. O'Brien's actions violated a federal law prohibiting the knowing destruction of such cards, and he was criminally convicted. As with Gregory Johnson in the flag-burning case, Jerry O'Brien also appealed his conviction on First Amendment grounds, arguing that his free speech rights had been abridged. In the course of resolving Jerry O'Brien's appeal, the Supreme Court established what became known, not surprisingly, as the O'Brien test. In order for a law implicating symbolic speech or conduct as speech for such a law to be upheld, the government must satisfy the following requirements. First, the government's interest in the law must be a substantial interest. 
Here, the Supreme Court determined that the government's interest was in upholding the integrity of the selective service system by which our nation's military forces were organized and thus was very substantial. Second, the government's interest may be unrelated to limiting freedom of speech. And again, the court determined that this was satisfied. The law in question was not directed toward freedom of speech, but only toward maintaining the military uh, recruitment process. And third, any incidental restriction the law imposes upon free speech must be as narrow as possible. And again, the draft burning law was determined to be as narrow as possible in curtailing free speech. One could still criticize the Vietnam War, one could still attack the draft in many ways, just not by destroying evidence of draft registration. The O'Brien test essentially balances the First Amendment interest in free speech with the government's substantial interest in non-free speech concerns. Several years later, in another symbolic speech case, Clark versus Community for Creative Nonviolence, the Supreme Court again affirmed federal policies that prohibited sleep-in protests on behalf of the homeless in Lafayette Park, located directly across the street from the White House, finding the free speech elements of the sleep-in on behalf of the homeless, to be outweighed under the O'Brien test by the government's interest in maintaining public access to Lafayette Park. Back then to Gregory Johnson and his flag burning. The result here was different than in either O'Brien or Clark. By a five to four vote, the Supreme Court struck down the Texas flag, flag law as unconstitutional under the First Amendment. In the process, not only was the Texas law ruled unconstitutional, but the laws of 47 other states, as well as a federal flag law, were also overturned. The state of Texas had sought to justify its law on two grounds. First, that it prevented altercations and breaches of the peace that might be caused when citizens who revered the flag saw it being disrespected and abused. And second, that the law preserved the flag as the national and unifying symbol of the United States of America. Neither justification persuaded the five members of the Supreme Court majority. Concerning the breach of peace argument, the court took issue with the proposition that Johnson's right to free speech could be compromised on the basis of the reaction to his speech on the part of those around him. This is just as marches and demonstrations that had occurred on the part of American Nazis and heavily Jewish communities such as Skokie, Illinois and Ku Klux Klan marches in African-American neighborhoods could not be entirely forbidden because some or even all onlookers might be offended and upset. Such an approach to the First Amendment, the court said, would render its constitutional guarantees dependent upon the approval of other persons, and that was inappropriate. Concerning the state's second argument that the flag was a symbol of our national unity, the court held that it was a bedrock principle of the First Amendment that the expression of ideas 
however repellent they may be to the majority, could not be prohibited. There were no exceptions to this principles, even where the American flag was concerned. Because the court had concluded that neither of these two justifications was unrelated to the suppression of free speech, unlike in the draft card case, there was no need even to apply the balancing test of O'Brien. For the O'Brien test was only applicable where law was directed toward non-free speech protected governmental interest. And here, the law was aimed at interests that were free speech protected in the court's judgment. Thus, while the draft card burner lost and the law prohibiting his conduct was upheld, the flag burner in Johnson prevailed and the law prohibiting his conduct was struck down as an abridgment of the First Amendment. Justice William Brennan, writing for the five justices of the majority, noted that other federal laws designated flag burning as the preferred means of disposing of a flag when it was no longer fit for public display. From this fact, he argued that to forbid flag burning where it endangers the flag's symbolic role but to allow it when it furthers that symbolic role is to state that the flag may be used as a symbol to communicate in only one direction. It may be burned where the flag is upheld as a symbol of nationhood and unity, but it may not be burned where the opposite message is communicated. It is an enduring lesson, Justice Brennan said, that government may not prohibit expression simply because it disagrees with the message. Regulations must be content neutral. They cannot be biased in favor or against a message. And that includes the message that the flag is not viewed as a symbol of nationhood and unity, as was apparently intended by Johnson in the course of burning the flag. Brennan continued that to allow only certain, what he called designated symbols, such as the flag to be protected from desecration under the law, would permit the communication of only a limited set of messages. There are no boundaries to this, he continued, and the government could, under the same theory, impose the political preferences of some upon the people as a whole. If insults of the flag are to be forbidden forever, why also not insults of ideas of non-discrimination, he inquired. Brennan concluded for the court that there was a superior way of, of honoring the flag. And, concluding his opinion by, and concluded his opinion by writing, we can imagine no more appropriate response to burning a flag than waving one's own, no better way to counter a flag burner's message than by saluting the flag that burns, no surer means of preserving the dignity of the flag that burned than by according its remains a respectful barrier. To say the least, Brennan's suggestions in his concluding paragraph were unpersuasive to Chief Justice William Rehnquist and the three other justices in dissent, where the majority observed that there are no First Amendment exceptions for hostility expressed toward the flag, no matter the mode or the manner of such expression. To the dissenters, this ignored traditional distinctions between pure speech and symbolic speech. 
That is, whatever the specifics of Johnson's message concerning Reagan, America, or the Stars and Stripes, he had countless alternatives by which to communicate that message. He could write about his views. He could speak about his views. He could march or picket about his views. He could broadcast about them. He could carry signs about them, and he could shout about them. Today, he could even blog about them or podcast about them. The only thing he could not do under the law was to desecrate the flag in the, in the course of communicating his message. And such symbolic speech to the dissenters was viewed as not particularly articulate means of communication, what they described as being more of a grunt or roar than the expression of any actual idea. Thus, the Texas law was not seen by the dissenting four justices as directed at freedom of speech, a freedom available to Johnson through 101 different methods, rather in depriving him of a single one of those methods, and a not particularly eloquent one at that, it is clear that the government's interest had nothing or little to do with free speech, as the majority had argued, but much more to do with the specific method or conduct by which that speech would be communicated. Indeed, Johnson himself had engaged in sustained and crude denunciations of Reagan and the United States and the policies of the Reagan administration, and yet had not been sanctioned for any of this. It was only his use of that symbol, not for his ideas or expressions, for which he had been punished. The dissent was also ardent in viewing the government's interest in foreclosing this single method of communication as involving a substantial government interest. To them, the flag stood in a special, a unique position as the symbol of our nation, as a unique part of our national heritage, not merely what the majority had described as one among many designated symbols. The dissenters proceeded at length to review the historical role of the flag. During the First and Second World Wars, hundreds of thousands of men had fought and died under the flag's banner, and yet we the people were now being instructed by the majority that its abuse could not be prohibited. The flag had played a central role in uniting the troops and militias of the northern states during the Civil War, both Republicans and Democrats whites and blacks. The Star-Spangled Banner had been composed during the War of 1812 after Francis Scott Key had been inspired by the flag continuing to wave over Fort McHenry following sustained British attacks. The flag had served to unify our colonies in fighting the British during the Revolutionary War and it stood as the very symbol of our national sovereignty during the earliest days of our republic and the flag symbolized even the nation at peace as well as war, signifying our country's presence on battleships, airplanes, military installations, and public buildings from the capital to the thousands of county courthouses and city halls and libraries throughout the country. Moreover, there are two flags displayed in the courtroom of the Supreme Court itself. Flags are placed on military and civilian graves throughout the country on Memorial Day. Flags are placed on the caskets of those who have served and passed away. 
half-staff flags are marks of respect for the deaths of both soldiers and public officials. The flag protects United States merchant ships throughout the world. The star-spangled banners are national anthem, stars and stripes forever our national march, and the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag our national pledge. Each of these honored wherever Americans congregate, at least with the exception of an NFL quarterback or two. In short, the flag is simply different. As, just, as Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, continued, no other American symbol has been as universally honored by Americans as the flag. It does not represent the views of any particular political party, and it does not represent any particular political philosophy. The majority, Chief Justice Rehnquist concluded, decides today that the government may conscript men into the armed forces. They must fight and perhaps die for the flag, but the government may not prohibit the public burning of the banner under which they fight. In a separate dissent, Justice John Paul Stevens also wrote movingly, and I quote, the ideas of liberty and equality represented by the flag have been an irresistible force in motivating leaders like Patrick Henry, Susan B. Anthony, Nathan Hale, and Booker T. Washington, and the soldiers who scaled the bluffs at Omaha Beach. If those ideas are worth fighting for, and our history demonstrates that they are, it cannot be true that the flag that symbolizes this power is not itself worthy of protection from unnecessary desecration. In response to the Johnson decision, the Congress enacted the Flag Protection Act the very same year. The critical difference was that that law, unlike the Texas law, did not require that the desecration of the flag be done in a way that the burner or desecrator knew would offend observers. Rather, desecration was punished without regard to the offensiveness of the message conveyed. In United States versus Eichmann, decided by the Supreme Court one year after Johnson and one year after the enactment of the Flag Protection Act, that act was also struck down as unconstitutional, again by a five to four vote. The court, again in an opinion by Justice Brennan, found that the federal law suffered from all of the same shortcomings as the Texas law. It suppressed expressions of points of view that were dis disrespectful toward the flag and what was thus biased in favoring one viewpoint concerning the flag over contrary viewpoints. And just as the five majority justices had little new to say, neither did the four dissenting justices in their futile application of the balancing test of O'Brien to sustain the flag measure. In the aftermath of both, of both Johnson and Eichmann, further efforts were made to amend the Constitution to legitimate federal and state laws forbidding the desecration of the flag. Although these efforts were in fact successful in the United States House of Representatives on six occasions, each time securing the support of two-thirds of the members of that body, each failed to secure the necessary two-thirds support in the Senate, and on the last occasion a decade ago, failing by a single vote. Thus, today, more than a quarter century after both Texas versus Johnson and Eichmann, 
those decisions remain the law of the land. Let me briefly mention one other later decision in 2011 in a case called Snyder versus Phelps, in which the First Amendment supplied the grounds for sustaining, that is upholding, the picketing of the funeral of a Marine killed in Iraq by a church asserting that God kills American soldiers as punishment for the sins of America. It was a different case in some ways from Johnson in that it was not a criminal case, but one in which the father of the dead Marine sought damages for the infliction of emotional distress from the picketing church members. It was a related case in its communication of the force of the First Amendment in the face not only of unpopular expressions of viewpoint, but also in the context of remarkably singular and unique forms of expression. In Johnson, the point of view was communicated by the destruction of our nation's most honored and distinctive symbol, and in Snyder it was communicated in the context of the picketing of a military funeral. In Snyder, all the justices but one held that the picketing related to broad issues of public interest, that these were carried out in a legal manner, and that such speech could not be restricted simply because it was upsetting to many or even aroused contempt. In a lone dissent, Justice Samuel Alito, hearkening back to several of the points of dispute in Johnson, opined, the First Amendment ensures that the picketing church has almost limitless other opportunities to express its views. Military funerals like the flag are unique. The Marine's father wanted what is surely the right of any parent who experiences such an incalculable loss to bury his son in peace, and of this he had been deprived. Let me finally return to the term freedom of expression, one that is often referenced in symbolic speech cases. It is a useful term to describe the range of methods of communicating to other people through speaking, writing, engaging in artistry, as well as undertaking a variety of forms of conduct that express ideas, including the burning of flags and draft cards. Recall again that there was little dispute in the cases that dealt with those subjects that these acts of burning and destruction should be viewed as forms of expression, but only dispute as to whether the government's reasons for forbidding the conduct outweighed the defendant's First Amendment rights. Few of us, had we been bystanders to what occurred, would have been unable to comprehend the messages silently being sent by Johnson and O'Brien by their actions. But bear in mind that the First Amendment refers not to freedom of expression, but to freedom of speech, and that these terms are not identical, but can cause us to get a bit waylaid or distracted in giving meaning to the actual language of the Constitution. There are two relatively distinctive lines of concern about equating expression and speech. The first is that once symbolic speech or expressive conduct, or whatever one chooses to call it, has been identified, a balancing test then comes into play that seems to assess the weight of the governmental interest in regulating the conduct 
with the freedom of speech interest being incidentally regulated. There are many First Amendment advocates who are troubled by what they view as this dilution of the First Amendment by which genuine free speech interests become the subject of mere balancing with other state interests. Although these advocates may well recognize that the expression of anti-war views by a letter to the editor and by the burning of a flag are considerably different, they are nonetheless troubled by the relatively equivalent weight given to the free expression and given to the government's regulatory concerns. The force of the First Amendment to them seems to be diminished or minimized by this approach. The second concern, as I have just suggested a few moments ago, is that while freedom of expression may be a reasonable way of summarizing the differing forms that freedom of speech can take, the former is also susceptible to a somewhat broader understanding, one that arguably reaches well beyond the traditional boundaries of the First Amendment. Consider, for example, that crude signals by hands and fingers can sometimes constitute for some personal expression, the communicative element of which may be reasonably clear to others. So too can gang colors worn on one's clothing and types of jewelry and hairstyles and tattoos and graffiti and disrespectful or disobedient forms of conduct and sitting or standing at inappropriate times, and choices of music in public places, and the desecration of grave sites, and armbands, and ribbons, and adornments, and religious paraphernalia and coverings, and picketings, protests, and marches, and interferences with traffic and the business of others, and smoking and drug use and loud noises. Freedom of expression is not necessarily the equivalent of free speech, and as more activities and forms of conduct come to fall within the analysis of the First Amendment, the propriety, the legality, the constitutionality of these forms of conduct will come increasingly to be decided by judges and less and less to be decided by representative legislative bodies and local communities. Consider... In Shad versus Mount Ephraim, for example, the Supreme Court in 1981, by a 7-2 vote, held that live nude dancing in an adult bookstore constituted expression that was protected by the First Amendment and thereby struck down a zoning requirement excluding these activities from a small New Jersey community. To the two dissenting justices in that case, the decision was sheer nonsense by trivializing and demeaning the First Amendment through its application to such expression. In quotes. A decade later, in Barnes versus Glenn Theater, the Supreme Court held that while erotic dancing might constitute expression, and thereby trigger the First Amendment, erotic dancing accompanied by full nudity could be regulated. And this was decided by a five to four vote. In concurring, Justice Scalia pointed out that virtually every law restricts conduct and virtually any prohibited conduct 
can be performed for an expressive purpose, if only expressive of the fact that the actor disagrees with the prohibition. Almost anyone can violate any law, he says, as a means of expression. These cases, Mount Ephraim and Barnes versus Glen Theater, merely hint or suggest at the scope of First Amendment frontiers that may soon be addressed by the court under the guise of symbolic speech. Thank you very much for your time and consideration. Mm-hmm.